The Murthy Law Firm has been clarifying U.S. immigration laws and procedures for foreign nationals since 1994. Teleconferences and podcasts were added to the resources available online in 2012. We are happy to offer this free service. Please listen to copyright information and restrictions at the end of this recording. Now, we are pleased to introduce attorney Sheila Murthy. Good afternoon. I am Sheila Murthy, president and CEO of the Murthy Law Firm. I'm so honored and delighted to welcome each of you to today's discussion about the immigration consequences of criminal activity on an individual, the impact obviously not just for the individual, but for the family members, as well as if you are an employer, a business or a company, the impact on your business because it would impact your valued employees. I have with me for today's discussion two of, I believe, the absolute top immigration crimmigration, as they call it, attorneys who deal with the criminal consequences of actions impacting a person's immigration status. And they are Anna Stepanova, who's been with the firm, I think, over 15 years at this point, brilliant lawyer, focuses a lot on the criminal issues, as I said, and also F1 student, you know, F1 student-related issues, and Laurie Haas, who worked very closely with Anna and who prior to actually joining the firm has, I think, maybe 20 years of experience working in the criminal arena, so has a different intuitive and in-depth understanding of the background of this case. So, you know, we're going to be talking or discussing the consequences that any type of criminal activity could have on an individual, a foreign national's immigration status which could ultimately end up resulting in the person either not being able to enter the United States or staying here and continuing to live and work legally, for example. Now, all of these are extremely complex issues, right? Because depending on the timing, the nature, what happened, the outcome of the criminal record, that will determine the impact for a person's uh, immigration status. And one thing that I get asked all the time, and I think all of us do, is, you know, it was a very minor offense. It was dismissed. So I don't need to mention it or it was canceled or terminated. It's not impact. It should not impact me. Everything was dismissed. Well, as you will hear from the discussion with Anna and Lori, that is absolutely not the determining factor. It's a much more complicated analysis and we are going to try to do that for you over the next 30 to 45 minutes as we like to do in each of our monthly conference calls. So with that, the first question that may come to your mind is, hey, how does a criminal record affect the eligibility for my or my employee's immigration benefits? So, By way of background, there are two specific categories of immigration benefits that could be affected. One, what's referred to as admissibility, being able to enter or be admitted into the U.S. And the second, if the person's already here in the U.S., is the ability to continue to stay or remain and maybe continue to just stay here, remain, or work if it's applicable for the person based on their status. 
if the person is determined to be inadmissible or not admissible, but the legal word is inadmissible based on the person's criminal record or criminal actions, what happened, what's in your record, the person may not be able to obtain a visa stamp from abroad, from the U.S. consulate abroad to enter the U.S., or they may not even be able to return to the U.S. from a trip abroad, even though it may look like they have a visa in their passport that was previously issued and that looks to be facially valid, uh, or the person could be actually prevented from becoming a lawful permanent resident or green card holder, or even as simple as to extend the person's non-immigrant status, even if the person's like on H1, L1, L2, H4, etc., right? F1 students, whatever. On the other hand, if the person's already in the United States, either in a, some type of a non-immigrant status or as a lawful permanent resident, the person can actually be subject to what's called as removal, which was previously called deportation, based on the person's criminal record. Finally, I'm going to point out that a foreign national can only be, inadmiss can be only inadmissible, but not subject to deportation or removal. Sometimes the person could be subject to one or the other, sometimes subject to both, and sometimes the criminal record would not prevent the person from obtaining certain immigration benefits and would not make the person subject to removal either. So I know it sounds so complicated, and that's why I said we'll continue the discussion because the big overview might actually result in you scratching your head and saying, I don't understand this. So let's go to the next important question, which is what is involved in analyzing a criminal record to determine how it would impact the foreign national's ability to either enter the United States or becoming a lawful permanent resident green card holder or to continue to stay in the U.S. Anna, I'll invite you to speak on that. Thank you, Sheila. As you just mentioned, uh, not every criminal record results in inadmissibility or subjecting the person uh, to removal or deportation from the U.S., and sometimes even if the person does have a conviction that does not prevent them from applying for a visa, coming to the U.S., adjusting status and becoming a permanent resident or naturalizing, and sometimes a lack of uh, conviction still subject, may subject the, uh, that person to all of those ineligibility issues, but every analysis for the purposes of uh, looking at the criminal record and determining whether it will subject the person to any ineligibility or not starts with trying to decide whether the person does have a conviction. So that's our initial step in every analysis that we, uh, we do here. A conviction for immigration purposes under the immigration law determined by or defined by Immigration and Nationality Act, or as we refer to it, INA, may not be the same as a conviction under a specific state law. So sometimes a person does not have a conviction under the state law, but nevertheless, they will have a conviction under the INA for immigration purposes. So how does the INA define a conviction? There are a couple of points here. So obviously, if there is a formal judgment of guilt of the foreign national entered by a state court or criminal 
federal court, that would result in a conviction under the INA. But if, let's say that uh, the person entered into some kind of a pretrial diversion agreement or uh, some type of plea agreement with the uh, prosecutor, then if adjudication or decision about the person's guilt has been withheld, there are two conditions, both of which will have to be met for the person to have a conviction under the INA, which um, is not the same, again, as a conviction under that state law or federal criminal law. So those conditions are that a judge or jury find the defendant guilty or the defendant enter the plea of guilty or even no contest. And uh, sometimes uh, it's enough for that defendant to admit sufficient facts to warrant the finding of guilt. That's condition number one. And the other one is that the judge has ordered some form of punishment. It doesn't need to be jail sentence. It could just be a fine or some kind of restraint on liberty, such as probation. So when both of these conditions are met, then the person will have a conviction for immigration purposes. And sometimes that means that there is no conviction in the criminal, within the criminal record itself. Thank you so much, Anna. Uh, yeah, I get this during consultations all the time where they'll be like, uh-uh, I, dec- I only entered a plea of no, no contest or no lo contendre, and the judge dismissed my case. Well, great. Good news. Under state law, you're exempt now. You're not considered, but you are subject to the federal, to checking all that column, as Anna just explained, under federal immigration law. And it's very confusing for a lot of people who don't understand how I can be completely off the record for a state crime, but still be guilty or liable under federal immigration law. Um, and 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 then I think there was another issue that we just you know talked about, uh, but there's a lot of like examples that we can give, and so I think it might be very helpful for us to actually discuss an example. So I'm going to invite you, Laurie, to just share with us, for example, just give us an example where the outcome of whether the individual has a conviction as a result of criminal proceedings under state or federal criminal law is different from the result under the INA. Thanks, Sheila. And yeah, it is good to um, go into this a little bit more in detail because it is a very common issue um, for a lot of low-level type offenses that we see um, that can have even dramatic effect, uh, you know, impacts on someone's immigration. So um, one of the examples that I'm going to highlight is Um, a situation where a defendant enters into um, what might be called a pretrial diversion agreement. Um, It might be called a deferred disposition. Each state has their own type of um, language and and really what's entailed. But many, um, uh, I guess, require and have some similarities that the defendant plead either guilty or no contest, which we've just talked about, that could either be called nolo contendere, and um, then comply with some type of penalty or often called a condition. That might be in the form of a fine, community service, doing an education program. Um, would not expect that to be any type of jail sentence, um, but once those conditions are um, satisfied, 
then the charge or the offense would be terminated either by way of a dismissal or a nulla prosequa or, or whatever the case may be in that particular state. But uh, under the state law, the intention is that there wouldn't be any conviction under the, uh, you know, for purposes under the state law. However, but since the defendant would have already pled guilty or no contest or nulla contendere, and then some sort of penalty was imposed, that would be a conviction for immigration purposes. So it's very important to understand this, that, you know, there, there could be dissimilar, you know, dis dissimilar outcomes between a state law and the federal immigration law. Exactly. And you know what happens a lot of times is some of them say, oh, this is one of the top criminal lawyers in my state. And some friends will recommend somebody for a, some kind of an unfortunate criminal incident that may have occurred in your life. You go to what you think is one of the top, top, top lawyers in that state to help you, to get you off. They say, yeah, just plead this or just do no look on tundra. Let's get you off of jail. And they think they've done you a huge favor which they have because the things could have been much worse from a state criminal point of view, but it does not protect you. So it's very important when there's any kind of a criminal issue with a person who is a non-U.S. citizen that you talk to both the state criminal lawyer that you're hiring and a federal immigration lawyer who can look at it, analyze it, and figure out what the potential criminal consequences are. And sometimes in weird situations, it, it may even sound crazy, that some people actually may say, you know what, I will plead not guilty, but be willing to serve jail for a certain period. There's all kinds of discussions on how to Correct. make this work, which is where the complexities keep increasing. So again, to reinforce the question that we sort of touched upon before, does every conviction subject one to ineligibility for immigration purposes? And the answer is no, because as we've mentioned before, the person may not be considered to be inadmissible or subject to removal or deportation, even if the person has a conviction under the Immigration and Nationality Act or the INA. Why? Because there are certain specific categories of crimes which are described under immigration law that a specific conviction may, for example, fall under. And an analysis of what category of crimes a conviction belongs to is then the next step where we, which we need to analyze. And based on that, even if the person has no conviction, as we talked about, the type of crime they admitted to having committed may also subject the person to ineligibility for certain immigration benefits. And I'm thinking of one example where somebody did a consultation with me years and years and years ago where they said, I don't have a record, everything's clean, everything's perfect, but when they entered the country, the CBP somehow, I don't know why, somehow got that person in a friendly, laughing, joking gesture to admit to having smoked marijuana, casually joked about it, and we tell people they are not your friends. Nobody's your friend because they have a job to do and we have a job to do. And so then this person was actually deemed deport, like expedited removal from the border, and the visa was canceled and everything because the person admitted to having committed something, even though there was no record, no judgment, no nothing ever that occurred before. So this really stresses the importance of understanding what you're doing. So next, we're going to talk about the most common categories of crimes 
that would make somebody subject potentially to inadmissibility or to re being subject to deportation or removal, Anna? Um, yes, Sheila, uh, certainly. So there are, as you mentioned, different types of or classes, if you will, of offenses that may serve as a basis for inadmissibility and removal. And to add one more layer of complexity to that, not every such class uh, would require a conviction for the person to suffer the consequences. So what are the classes? They could be crimes involving moral turpitude, aggravated felonies, controlled substances, as you mentioned, uh, federal controlled substances, um, or domestic violence. So all of those things would need to be analyzed. But by far, what we see most commonly is crimes involving moral turpitude. What is important to understand is that you will not see an exact definition in a statute or regulation of what would constitute a crime involving moral turpitude because um, the definition is a product of judge-made decisions. Uh, but what these decisions have in common is that they define a crime involving moral turpitude as something that involves dishonesty and fraud and a specific intent to do something unlawful. So to involve moral turpitude, a crime requires two essential elements, a culpable state of mind or a guilty state of mind and um, reprehensible conduct. So the uh, examples of crimes involving moral turpitude include a shoplifting or larceny. Uh, usually it is a crime involving moral turpitude, but we need to look at the exact wording in the statute defining the crime because sometimes there are exceptions. And a shoplifting, for example, in the state of Maryland, not all shoplifting constitutes a crime involving moral turpitude. But usually they do because the criminal statute or ordinance that is used for prosecuting it in a state or federal court requires that the person has a specific state of mind. Unlike crimes involving moral turpitude, what um, the other, how do we understand why uh, the statute uh, refers or defines a crime involving moral turpitude? As I already said, it requires a specific state in mind. And unlike that, there is another group of crimes which we refer to as a general intent crime something that is usually uh, prohibited conduct or describes the prohibited conduct, but does not require a guilty state of mind. So that would not be a crime involving moral turpitude. So you see that this analysis um, also is pretty complicated and it, it um, requires to look at the statute or ordinance exactly and to analyze each and every word, each element of the crime uh, in the statute to see if that would constitute a particular class of crimes that would potentially be uh, unfavorable to the person. And one of the most common ones is, again, a crime involving moral turpitude. Got it. Uh, thank you, Anna. Well, I got it. I don't know how <laughs> whether everybody else who's listening <laughs> to the conference got it because it, it's really very, I think, I think, there, I would even venture to say that out of, if there are, you know, 
10,000 immigration lawyers, maybe 10 at most, one in a thousand, I think really gets into the area of immigration or what we call criminal or crimmigration because it's so convoluted and we said overlaying state and federal laws together. And we do see many different categories of offenses, I would say regularly in our practice, maybe not very often because as a percentage in general, immigrants and foreign nationals tend to not violate the law. They tend to be actually much more compliant in many cases than the average American population because the impact can be so severe and mess up your ability to live and work and just be here. So, but keeping that in mind, what are the common categories that we see, even though the percentage may only be one in 10,000 or one in 100,000 that may even be involved in violations because we do so many of these cases, what is it that we often see and observe in our practice, Laurie? Uh, yes, Sheila, and I just wanted to add um, uh, first, though, that, that, you know, seeking, you know, advice on, on your, I guess, your criminal record before it actually gets to a completion can actually be very helpful. Um, you know, uh, we see many clients come to us um, when they are applying for immigration benefits when their criminal record has kind of come to a completion and, and it's several years old. However, it's it's advisable to um, seek advice, uh, you know, almost as soon as you're charged, because with the with good advice, you may be able to avoid some very significant consequences in many of these different categories, which I will touch on. Um, and I also want to emphasize that what might be considered um, you know a crime involving moral turpitude, like on a mentioned in one state may not be, you know, what be, would be considered a crime, invo- moral, crime involving moral turpitude in another state. Um, she touched on shoplifting. The same goes for um, other categories such as domestic violence. Um, how that, how the statute defines the offense is very important to understanding whether your offense or the offense that you're charged with actually fits in that category. So we study the language of the charge, um, whether it uh, demonstrates um, a specific intent. Um, For domestic violence, it would be, you know, um, the type of um, actions that would be required to satisfy the charge. Other categories might include uh, prostitution. We uh, see that um, quite often, controlled substances offenses, firearm offenses, and aggravated felonies. Um, It's important to underscore that every state and federal statute must be analyzed based on the definition for a particular category to determine the immigration consequences for that individual, if any. So it's quite complicated, and the sooner you uh, seek that advice, the better off you'll be, because you can actually change the trajectory of, of the types of consequences that you might. And there are some creative ways to, um, you know, perhaps avoid some of those consequences. Yet, um, you know, we often see criminal defense attorneys working with prosecutors to, um, you know, come to an agreeable solution um, or agreement uh, for a particular individual. Yeah, it's really, as we said, a very tricky, slippery slope. So you absolutely something that we need to be very cognizant of. 
and ensure that you're working with people. And as I keep saying, Anna and Laurie do this all the time, and I know there's so few law firms and lawyers that do this area of the law because of its complexity and because of needing to understand the implications of state laws in different states as well as federal law. Um, but, you know, one of the other things that we want to touch upon, of course, is what are the typical immigration consequences for a person who may be convicted of a CIMT or crime involving moral turpitude that we just talked about, uh, and one of the most common offenses that, of course, we see all the time, which I think Anna also referred to, is the crime of shoplifting. So, but there could be an exception, right? So an individual, for example, who has a conviction for a CIMT is subject both to inadmissibility and removal slash deportation. However, if the person has committed only one such crime and the possible, the maximum punishment under the law, that particular state law, that for that crime cannot and does not exceed one year, and the, while the actual punishment that is imposed on the individual does not exceed six months, even if the sentence is deferred, right? So if it's less than six months, the maximum possible penalty under that particular state law for that particular crime cannot exceed one year, then that individual is deemed as not being subject to inadmissibility. Why? Because this is referred to as the petty offense exception, right? So there's something called a petty offense exception so it's certainly important to keep in mind that a conviction is not required for someone to be subject to inadmissibility as it can be simply based on the commission of a CIMT when the person admits to the facts. And I shared that example with you a few minutes ago. A conviction for a CIMT is required for someone to be subject to removal, unlike with the person subject to inadmissibility. When the incident that is leading to the charge occurred, within a five-year period since that person was admitted to the United States as a permanent resident, right? And the maximum of one year or more is possible for that offense. So now you're talking about a different category. So this is approximately the type of analysis that you would need to make based on the history involving the CIMT, However, the same offense could be categorized as belonging to multiple categories of crime, such as a CIMT and domestic violence and aggravated felonies. So again, all of this requires a careful and complex analysis to ensure that the foreign national understands the immigration consequences of a potential violation that has occurred. So let's try to talk about another issue which is what happens when the person travels outside. Very often, many of them are even clueless. They think, oh, you know, I discussed, I, I did, did not, you know, my case was dismissed. They, they always, my first sentence is my case was dismissed. Well, no, it wasn't. You pled nolo contendere. They don't, people don't understand that there's a dismissal is not a dismissal under federal immigration law. So what happens when the person goes abroad, applies for a visa at a U.S. consulate, and now the criminal record pops up. Anna? Yeah, sure. We get so many questions uh, about uh, what to 
expect at the consulate when somebody has to travel or wishes to travel and they have a criminal record. And the first thing that we tell people is that it would not be advisable to travel until your record is completed. So don't travel with a pending criminal proceeding, for example, because when you go to the consulate, the first thing that the consular officer wants to uh, look at is what's called a certified, court-certified final disposition document. You won't get it if you are still on probation, for example. So at that point, what we've seen happen is that the person says that I need to get back to the U.S. to finish up my criminal record, and the consular officer says, I don't care. Give me the final disposition document. So this is uh, the first advice that we give people don't travel until you're able to travel with the uh, certified copy of the final disposition, which means that the case has been completed and closed, may or may not be expunged or deleted or sealed, but it has to be closed. Also, what we tell people is that even if they're speaking of expungement or um, removal of the record by some other means, even in that case, the person still has to disclose their criminal record on the form DS-160, which is the application for a visa. And what uh, the person then, the applicant, the visa applicant would need to do is to provide an explanation in a little window, a little space that is going to pop up on your screen when you are filling out the electronic DS-160. Our advice is not to uh, explain it in terms of, of what actually happened in the underlying case. That case has already been decided, and this is no longer the issue. What we advise that people do is provide an explanation in terms of what happened procedurally speaking. I, on such and such date, I was arrested and charged with such and such offense. This is what I pleaded. This is what happened uh, procedurally, how the case was disposed of, and now uh, the case is closed. So procedural history is what you need to uh, respond with when either uh, you explain it on the form DS-160 or the consular officer uh, asks what, uh, what happened. Also, we are very um, good at uh, advising our clients about and teaching them and educating them on what their criminal history means in terms of immigration consequences. And we can put it on paper in um, a short, concise, and very clear legal opinion, which the uh, visa applicant may find very helpful if just for their peace of mind when they go to apply for the visa. Uh, usually, consular officers are very appreciative of getting this opinion because it serves as a roadmap. It tells them what happened, what the legal analysis is, and they kind of um, see for themselves that this usually this does not subject the person to inadmissibility. So these are uh, basically uh, what we, uh, the, the advice that we give people when they need to travel and they already have a criminal record. 
Thank you, Anna. Um, so yes, it can be, get very tricky. And I know the next situation that happens is when you travel abroad, either because you're ignorant or you absolutely have no choice, I had a person once who said, but I have to go. It's my marriage. And there's 3,000 people invited and my family, you know, name and reputation, I have to be there. Well, okay, you travel, but we see situations at the consulate that you as a visa applicant or as an employer needs to be aware of what could happen because there's something referred to as prudential revocation and Laurie is going to discuss that and explain it, what happens in these situations. Laurie? Yeah, thanks for bringing this issue up, uh, Sheila. The, and this type of issue might come up even if a, you know, a, your court case or your charge has already been resolved at the state level. So uh, in the context of a DUI or a driving under the influence or it may be called something else in, in the state and where you live, um, if you're arrested, even if you're just arrested for a DUI, you may not even have a conviction. Um, you'll most likely be subject to an automatic visa revocation, also known as a prudential revocation, which you might have heard that term before. And that information, the fact of your arrest, gets communicated to the consulate. And U.S. consulate officers are instructed and are routinely check, um, you know, reports of foreign nationals that are arrested for crimes in the United States. And when a foreign national is arrested for a DUI or a similar type offense, they are instructed to email or contact the visa holder at the address that's been provided to let them know that their visa, meaning their travel document in their passport, has been revoked. And the same can be for um, the foreign national spouse and or children. Their visas may also be revoked. Uh, revoked. Especially if they're dependents. Correct, correct. Thank you. And, and this really is a, a completely separate um, analysis and kind of issue separate and apart from someone's admissibility or whether or not they would have already been subject to removal. We're talking about whether or not they can um, obtain a visa to travel to the United States. And so when someone who's been arrested for a DUI, even if they haven't been notified uh, that their visa is revoked, when they do travel and they do go to um, – when they go when they go back to travel back to the United States, they'll find that their visa has been revoked. If it, if you've been notified that it's been revoked, then you would need to go to the consulate and apply for a new visa. When your visa has been revoked due to a DUI arrest, if you're in the United States and you're made aware of that, it's not necessary for you to leave the United States. A revocation of your visa does not necessarily make you illegal to be in the United States since your I-94 controls your legal status while you're in the United States. So there's often a lot of confusion on this point. Your, your, your revocation of your visa and your passport, sometimes called a visa foil or a visa stamp, doesn't affect your status while you're in the United States. However, when you do travel or if you need to leave the United States and return, like I said before, you'll have to go to the return to the, the consulate and apply for a new visa. When you complete, and I think Anna touched on this, when you um, a, apply for a new visa, regardless of whether your visa was revoked and regardless of whether you were um, had a conviction for the offense, you will need to disclose the fact of your DUI arrest on your visa application, which is very important. Um, 
a single DUI arrest in the last five years or two or more in the last 10 will result uh, in a referral to a panel physician to determine whether or not the person has a mental disorder based on uh, alcohol abuse. Um, this is true even if there wasn't a conviction. And I'm gonna ask Anna to go into this a little bit, in a little bit more detail, please. Uh, before Anna starts, if I could just, you know, add that a lot of times people will say, oh, I don't need to say anything on the DS-160 because the case is dismissed, my lawyer told me no, or when it's expunged. And we know that that is the kiss of death because the DS-160 form, like many immigration-related forms, mm -hmm. are signed under penalty of perjury, which is a separate cr cr federal criminal offense to provide wrong information to the government. And so a lot of times people will say, well, my lawyer said, no, I don't need to say that because it's expunged, it's been cleaned up. And the answer, of course, is no, 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 no. You have to, for immigration, say it. So, sorry, I know, Anna, you were going to jump in and discuss something connected with this issue. Um, thank you, Sheila. I was just going to follow up on uh, what Lori was talking about when uh, the person goes to um, get the visa after uh, being charged or arrested or convicted with drunk driving. Uh, whether DUI or DWI, whatever your state calls it. When applying for a new visa after just a DUI arrest alone, um, and of course that the same would uh, apply to when you have a conviction for it, you should probably plan on being outside the United States for at least several weeks to complete the visa processing. Because as Lori just explained, uh, this would require, in certain circumstances, that the uh, applicant, the visa applicant, undergo examination with the U.S. Uh, consulate-approved physician, which is called a panel physician. Uh, in this case, the uh, evaluation is not going to result in uh, a finding of inadmissibility because of the criminal issue, but it would be solely... Um, required to determine whether there is some kind of a mental disorder, meaning that the person may present uh, with a harmful behavior to themselves or others, and that is likely to recur. I've been doing it um, a long time. Sheila mentioned I've been with the firm for over 15 years, and my uh, I've been doing it for over 17 years now, but I've only seen a couple of times when the results of the panel physician's medical evaluation uh, resulted in an inadmissibility finding based on the medical determination. And if that happens, the person may reapply in a year and they will be reevaluated. Re so uh, the only thing, the, the only reason I mention it here is that most people in this circumstances, especially when there was only a single uh, drunk driving arrest or conviction, are able to get their visa. But it's important to understand that this delays the visa processing itself. So. First, you apply, the consular officer makes a referral, you need to schedule an appointment or an appointment will be scheduled for you then um, to undergo the, uh, uh, me the, the uh, medical test and then the results 
are communicated back to the consular officer and the visa is issued at the end of this entire process. So this is, um, this, this is a delay and you should be ready for it. Thank you, Anna. I know we're running a little short on time. We're almost close to 40 minutes. So I think we'll just wrap up the last two or three or four issues if we can very quickly, very briefly by touching upon it. Um, is, uh, you know, very often the consulates or the USCIS will request the applicant to provide the police records. And the question that we often get asked is, hey, should I go ahead and produce it to them for them to ensure I get the visa? As a general rule, police records should not be provided either to the USCIS or to the consulate because a police report, which is only for probable cause statement, that's what's based on a police report, which cannot be used to prove a conviction. Proof of a criminal conviction can be established through documents such as the official record of judgment or the official record of conviction, official record of plea, of a verdict, sentence, and a docket entry from court records that indicates the existence of the conviction. Um, sometimes the consulate in the USCIS is allowed to look at the documents that make up the record of conviction if the statute of the conviction has been found by the court to be what is referred to as divisible, right? So there's a divisible statute. Police records are not part of the record of conviction. So hence, they should not be provided to determine the nature of the conviction. The record of conviction generally consists of this, both the statutory definition, which is, is the charging document, the written plea agreement, transcript of plea colloquy, and any explicit factual finding by the trial judge, uh, by the trial judge to which the defendant agrees or assents to. Uh, what about something that we're always asked routinely, can you provide me a written legal analysis, a criminal research memo, help me with a document which outlines everything I've done? You know, is that something that you would do, Anna and Lori, regularly? Um, and do you believe it helps the individual? Yes, absolutely. And we provide several types of legal memos. One that we already mentioned would be uh, shown to the consular officer to help them understand what the record entails. Uh, uh, this uh, type of memo could be shown to the Customs and Border Protection Officer or CBP officer. If you uh, are stopped at the border, it could be submitted with uh, a request, uh, a response to a request for evidence on this issue and so on and so forth. But another type of very helpful document uh, would be generated before the case is completed. And usually it, it is um, to provide the legal analysis to actually mitigate or minimize the consequences and help uh, the person's criminal defense attorney to uh, develop a strategy in defending that person in the criminal court. So uh, two analysis, one is when the case has been completed and the other one is to provide a roadmap on how to uh, strategize and what strategies to use in a criminal case so that the potential implications for the person's uh, immigration issues um, have been mitigated as much as possible. Thank you, Anna. Um, Laurie, a question for you. Do you recommend getting a criminal record sealed or expunged? Because 
We touched upon it. A lot of lawyers suggest that to clean mm-hmm. up so that it never shows up. Yeah, we did touch on that. And I just wanted to add, um, you know, and it kind of like overlaps a little bit. Um, you know, having a letter, um, you know, an opinion letter can also serve to be helpful, um, you know, like Anna said, in, you know, for your criminal defense attorney who, who may in fact be sharing that with, um, you know, a prosecutor who, you, you know, one might think understands, you know, what the immigration consequences, but they too are, you know, the, the types of consequences are so vast and so, so, you know, kind of involved that even a prosecutor may not even understand that the kind of the serious consequences uh, that they may not even intend to kind of um, have happen outside of the criminal context. So in terms of getting a, a record sealed or expunged, uh, wh- whether that's, a, a you know, an advisable thing, you know, regarding your, you know, kind of your in a criminal context, it, it may be advisable, but but it's very very important that prior to uh, getting your criminal record sealed or expunged, is to obtain uh, what we refer to as you know final court disposition. Uh, you really want to make sure that, and, and those are the documents you would um, obtain from the court when your case is concluded. So prior to that, you will have already received uh, what would be referred to as a charging document. If there's any plea agreement, um, perhaps, you know, if the case does not go to trial, that may also be a document that you'd want to make sure that you have a copy of that would explain what, um, and, and it may not always be in written format, but that would explain whether the charge was amended, uh, what the final uh, plea was to which offense, um, what the outcome is intended to be. And then when I say final court disposition, this would uh, essentially look like a summary of what happened, uh, you know, when you either pled guilty, pled not guilty, uh, whether you pled no contest, how the, what finding was made by the court, what the sentence was, and all of those pieces will inform uh, the immigration official in terms of what, if any, types of consequences. So that's, it's a critical piece of information and it, it's really what, um, you know, and, and without it, uh, you know, a consular officer or an immigration official or, or officer in the United mm-hmm. States would not be able to make a determination. So it, it's very, very important to, you know, obtain those documents before having your case expunged. Thanks, Laurie. I'm so sorry. I know we're running very short on time. We try to wrap it up in 45 minutes, but you can see it's such a complicated and complex and difficult analysis. So just excuse us for a couple minutes as we wrap up and conclude. Uh, one of the questions, of course, is people assume once I've got my green card, I'm a permanent resident, I'm off the hook, I can do anything I want, I'm not going to be. And the answer, of course, is no. Even if you're a lawful permanent resident, you're not yet a U.S. citizen. So you, uh, in fact, it could, you could be subject to deportation slash removal. You could actually be prevented from obtaining and filing for U.S. citizenship because a conviction or an admission of certain crimes would preclude what's called finding good moral character, which we refer to sometimes as GMC, um, which is required to, in order to file for U.S. citizenship. And they are allowed to go back up to five years from the date that you're filing for citizenship. So... If you had two or more as a lawful permanent resident, two or more convictions, for example, for driving under the influence during the five-year statutory period, then you are presumed to lack 
good moral character, which you absolutely need to satisfy and meet in order to apply and obtain your U.S. citizenship. So what happens in many cases is they obtain a denial uh, they, they have, because they haven't talked to a lawyer and don't understand the implications. When they talk to one of us as lawyers at our firm, at the multi law firm, we might end up waiting the five years, explaining what happened and trying to overcome that whole issue. So to wrap up and conclude, you know, as we've discussed, there's a lot of, uh, it's a very complex analysis. Um, it's very important not to ever admit to any facts or provide additional or information that you don't have to provide to either the USCIS or any federal agency, the CBP or the consular officer, because there are severe consequences. You could be subject to deportation, removal, inadmissibility, et cetera. And so please be cognizant whether you're the employer, the employee, the family member to understand it, even if you didn't understand all of what we explained, uh, to understand that this is a very complex area and you should really consult with a knowledgeable immigration law firm. At the Multi Law Firm, we clearly have a team that is extremely knowledgeable on these issues, discusses a lot of these issues, and prepares documents. On behalf of Anna Stepanova, Laurie Haas, and all of us at the Multi Law Firm, we thank you for joining us today. We look forward to you continuing to enjoy your summer, and we look forward to speaking with you next month and discussing issues that may be of interest to you, your family or your business so that we can continue to be your go-to law firm for all of your immigration matters because as our slogan says, we know your immigration matters. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful afternoon. Take care. This is a free service. The content is the protected copyrighted property of the Murthy Law Firm. Unauthorized recording or dissemination of these materials without prior permission is prohibited by law. Learn about our firm, how to engage our services and more at www.murthy.com.